everybody welcome back to the proceedings podcast i'm ward carroll naval institute director of outreach and marketing with me is my normal co-host the proceedings editor-in-chief bill hamlet well bill we're all west all the time preps looking forward to next week and seeing all of the folks out there we're so happy to be back in person never mind showing our vaccine cards and wearing masks that's a fine trade-off to be able to be in that great city the weather looks good on sunday i think it's going to get a little cold as the week goes on by san diego standards but whatever 60 something is better than 20 something uh but yeah. in any case yeah. we're, we're back san diego here we come yep, be yep. A great program so remind everybody what the theme is this year and uh, what we have on on tap yeah the theme this year is uh, are we investing in the uh, capabilities needed for great power competition fast enough. In other words, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, launching their hypersonic missile and uh, Russia talking about uh, its uh, new, exciting, long-range, nuclear-powered, high-speed, uh, you know, megaton weapon. Uh, and so in the face of those uh, growing adversary capabilities are, are the USC services, particularly Navy and Marine Corps, investing quickly enough uh, in the capabilities to counter uh, those adversary capabilities and also to, uh, you know, to build a credible offense. Uh, so that's the, that's the main theme. Uh, it should be a great conversation, lots of good panels and, uh, and speakers. We've got the Sea Service Chiefs, as always at West, we get the Commandant of the Marine Corps, Commandant of the Coast Guard, and the CNO. Uh, and that's always the, the sort of the wrap up of, of West, so on uh, next Friday. Uh, and I think uh, our CEO is the one who's going to be doing that, uh, uh, moderating that panel discussion. And then uh, in the background, one of the things that's been getting a lot of attention from our staff and, and in the planning phases is what we call DARE. Uh, and that is the, uh, the effort that we've had going on for about six or seven years now. It's usually in conjunction with West and it's back with West this year, where a sea service chief will ask two questions. And we pose those questions directly to a group of about 60 or 70 uh, junior and mid-grade uh, enlisted and officers uh, from the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard, plus uh, some civil service professionals as well. Uh, and so the, uh, the team uh, is being led by uh, Ian Starr, our Coast Guard Federal Executive Fellow. The Coast Guard Commandant has posed the questions to that group this year. And then uh, on next Friday, when West is wrapped up and that Sea Service Chief panel is done, the Commandant of the Coast Guard will head upstairs to a room at the San Diego Convention Center, and he'll get a debrief directly from those, you know, lieutenants and lieutenant commanders and majors and captains and gunny sergeants and chief petty officers who will have been, uh, you know, ideating on the problems that, uh, you know, that, that the Commandant needs help with and, and advice on. So, it's always fun to see that uh, debrief uh, where, you know, mid-grade people get to give, you know, uh, advice and, and answers directly to the four-star. Uh, and it doesn't go through 19 layers of chain of command where the decision is uh, or the advice is, uh, you know, stripped down and changed and modified. And well, what the lieutenants really meant to say was this, or no, no, it's direct. It's, uh, you know, directly from the lieutenants and and uh, the, the enlisted folks uh, straight to the, the chief of the service. So that'll be, uh, you know, interesting to watch. And, and General, I mean, sorry, uh, Admiral Schultz, the Commandant of the Coast Guard is just 
he's uh, I know he's somebody who's impressed us as as a guy who really does listen to what junior people have to say. He's he's um, uh, you know thoroughly interested to hear the ideas that come up from the deck plates. So that'll be kind of cool to watch the uh, the debrief of the day. Yeah, we, so we've had the commandant on the podcast, and he actually broke the uh, what was the IUU? Uh, what was that acronym for their fisheries? Uh, yeah, the fishing. illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing strategy that he came so up with. He, that was one of the episodes. So if you haven't heard that one, check it out. It's, it gives you a good idea of uh, how forward leaning the commandant is, and uh, it was great to have him break that news on the podcast. Uh, we appreciate that kind of consideration. So as you say, Bill, DARE is amazing. I've been there as this was going on, the sort of tag team of civilian and uniformed, uh, you know, JOs to mid-grade officers is just really exciting. And they come up with some cool stuff. Uh, so that's great. As always, if you're a member, we hope to see you at the member reception at the Ultimate Skybox. That is on. I Is that Still, can folks who are listening still register for that? Do we know? I, th I think register registration is closed for that okay. because uh, you know there's a the fire marshals put a certain limit on the the number of people we can put into that venue. So I think it yeah. is closed. However, uh, if you've not registered for West, uh, if you haven't, if it's just you know sort of popping up on your on your screen right now, uh, active duty people and government service employees can attend West for free. West is free if you are active duty. Uh, and if you are not active duty, if you're retired or a former, but you're a Naval Institute member, you get a deep discount on the cost of admission. So if you're in San Diego or going to be near San Diego next week, and you're just hearing about West, it is next Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, late February, mid, mid, what is it? The 16, 17, 18 February. It's at the San Diego Convention Center. It is an amazing uh, event. And you get to hear lots and lots of, uh, you know, people who are experts in the field of technology and weapons and strategy and tactics, plus the sea service chiefs. Uh, and if you're active duty, come for free. And we'll note for folks who've attended West before that we're further, I think we're talking south in the convention center this year. We're, we're normally in ABC and this year we're in DEF bays of the convention center. So you can figure it out on site, but just if you're familiar and you're thinking and you're walking in the normal place, shift down a couple of uh, convention bays and we'll see you down there. Um, so like, why don't we get right to our guest? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for about a year now, we've had this uh, great project going on called the American Sea Power Project in proceedings with a big article uh, by sort of a headline author each month. And we continued that for the February issue our guest today is Dr. Tom Mankin. He is uh, joining us from Northern Virginia. He's the President Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Senior Research Professor at the Philip Merrill Center of Strategic Studies at Johns Hopkins Paul Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies. That's a, that's a mouthful, but it's uh, uh, Tom, it is great to have you on the show, and thanks for writing uh, for Proceedings. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So your article is uh, it's titled A Maritime Strategy to Deal with China. And we've been sort of building up to this article for, as I said, about a year with laying the basics of, you know, what does it mean for the United States to be a maritime power? What is a Navy for? Nick Lambert wrote that piece last uh, April. 
And then over time, we've sort of narrowed and gotten more and more focused on China and the problem uh, that China poses. And now your article is a maritime strategy to deal with China. So just uh, give our, our listeners uh, a 30,000 foot perspective on, on, uh, on, on, on your strategy. Well, first, uh, congratulations on the uh, on the initiative because I really do think it's outstanding, and it's uh, really a, an honor to participate in it and, and to be able to contribute to the to the discussion. And uh, I think it's a discussion that's that's vitally needed. Uh, we need to be debating and dis- discussion discussing these issues. And so, you know, my uh, my article is meant to really prompt you know prompt discussion. And the the starting point there is that. We really need to ask ourselves first and foremost, what is it about China that concerns us? What is it about China's rise that worries us? And then next to think about what we could possibly do to to deal with that. So to the first part, I'd say there really are four elements of uh, of China's rise that that really that really concern us, whether we think about it in these terms or not. First is uh, China's international activism. So Chinese Communist Party is more engaged internationally than it has been previously. A second part of it is is geopolitical, geostrategic. It's not just international activism overall, but it's China's uh, assertion of of its uh, of itself in the maritime littoral. Uh, a third dimension is is the Chinese leadership's increasing dissatisfaction with the, with the status quo. And then finally, there's a whole basket of issues that I think really come from uh, the fact that China is an authoritarian state. So then the question is, what you know, what can we do about it, if anything? <clears throat> and uh, the maritime strategy is is I guess most most directly meant to address the, uh, the uh, China's uh, assertiveness in the maritime littoral of Asia, uh, but I think it also could could have other effects as well. So you know, very very basically stated. It, it means to take the the geography of maritime Asia and use it to our advantage. And when I say our, I mean the United States and our uh, and our close allies. So uh, to that geographic point, the uh, the opening uh, picture, if you will, the opener for the article shows a, a map of the littoral of, of uh, Asia with China. It's sort of in the center. Uh, and then we've got the first and second island chains drawn on there. And you talk a lot of, in your article about the types of forces that the U.S. W- uh, would need, maritime forces, naval forces that we would need uh, ar- arrayed along those, uh, uh, those two lines, the first and second island chain. So, uh, a li- you know, describe, if you would, a little bit, um, wh- what is the first island chain for our listeners who haven't maybe heard that or, 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 or paid a lot of attention to th- those two uh, terms, the, the, the first and second island chain? Yeah, so you know, it's 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 one of these uh, you know kind of ironies of history. So the the, the you know the Chinese uh, use the term first island chain a lot. Uh, best uh, you know, best we can tell, they 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 actually got it from us, meaning that it was actually uh, first coined uh, by American diplomats uh, and then sort of picked up picked up by them. But uh, where we talk about the first island chain, I like to say it's it's American allies and 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 friends. So you're talking about the 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 chain of uh, of islands going all the way from Japan uh, through Taiwan, the Philippines uh, on on down. Uh, 
And I think while we, you know, as uh, uh, as Americans, we tend to focus on uh, the maritime geography uh, and the of the of the vast, you know, uh, Pacific and the distance that separates us from our allies and our interests and even our territories in the Western Pacific, uh, as seen from Beijing, that that first island chain, that archipelago of U.S. allies and and friends, really hems them in and really uh, uh, constrains China's access to the broad Pacific. And so one of the elements of the strategy is to is to make that geographic fact a strategic virtue for the United States and our allies. Uh, so you mentioned it at the at the opener a little bit about uh, China's sort of four behaviors that are of you know concern. Uh, talk a bit about the the behavior within that first island chain, which is of great concern to the U.S. and our allies out there now. Yeah, I think you see a, a, a range of uh, of Chinese behaviors that are of concern, and uh, I think again it's it's become um, common to talk about China having a, an anti-access strategy, uh, or as they would talk about a, a counter-intervention strategy. I think that's basically right, but uh, it goes beyond the military, right? If you look at uh, Chinese economic behavior uh, uh, in in its uh, in its neighborhood. Yeah, their military behavior, even their political behavior, it's all really to the same, you know, to the same end, which is to try to deny the United States access to the Western Pacific, to try to detach allies from the United States, to try to undermine their confidence in the United States, and to try to use political, economic, and, and, and military levers uh, to coerce states in the region. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's that's the type of behavior that we need to be combating now. And they've laid claim to the entire South China Sea as blue territories. Talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, you know, it's they uh, China as a as a as a continental power kind of uh, views, you know, views the oceans uh, like a continental power does. As you say, they they uh, they've staked a claim to large parts of the South China Sea, and, and they refer to that as blue soil. Uh, I think for the United States as a maritime power, uh, we have a very different tradition, right? We tend to see the oceans as the commons, uh, as, you know, as, as sort of uh, as, as open to all, and we've acted to maintain uh, freedom of, of, uh, of navigation, the free flow of goods and services across the global commons. Uh, but they have a very uh, yeah, territorial approach, uh, even to even to the oceans. And their behavior, you know, to that end, uh, as you say, you know, we consider in our, you know, really since World War II, I think for the most part, the world has considered outside of a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, uh, the world ocean to be the commons to be, it's not anybody's territory, it, it, you know, once you get outside that 200 mile uh, range. Uh, but if you look at the South China Sea and their claim of the entire tongue of the ocean or the, the nine dash line, um, you know, they claim way beyond 200 miles from mainland China and, and well within what is 200 nautical miles from just about every other, you know, contingent uh, state in the South China Sea, correct? 
Yeah, absolutely. And they've gone to great lengths to create artificial features, to create islands where where uh, where islands didn't exist, uh, to bolster that. And they've gone to great lengths to you know, dis- disrupt, destroy the maritime ecosystem uh, in that in that massive island building campaign. And you know, it's not just uh, not just artificial features. It's it's uh, it's bases at this point. I mean, it's it's. Uh, considerable military facilities on those on those militarized features. So, Tom, um, where does this situation play out in the current events happening with the provocations of Taiwan? The the you know we we did have two carrier strike groups sort of heading that way. Now Vincent is uh, headed back home, um, but there was some tension, uh, not to mention what's happening in Ukraine and the relationship between Putin. Uh, and the, the the head of the the, the PLA or the the communist China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so where does this construct play out in in current events, and what's your uh, handicapping of what what might happen with respect to no lie kinetic hostile acts? Well, you know the 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 bad news is that the Chinese regime feels increasingly emboldened. Uh, to to act, and they feel that way because of uh, the investments that they've made in in their military modernization. I think uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, the limited pushback that they've gotten uh, from from the United States on, on their actions. The good news is, though, that that the that the geography of the Western Pacific, again, this idea of a first island chain, but but really the the archipelago of of our allies and our partners really you know uh, uh, can be made favorable to defending our interests and our allies defending their sovereignty with the right type of investments and uh, the strategy that I you know that I talk about sort of lay, lays that out I mean it's a combination of land-based sea and air denial capabilities backed by mobile maritime and 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 air capabilities uh, we've got to, you know, both we and our allies have to figure out a way to stop responding to every provocation uh, in kind. You talked about our, uh, our our carrier strike group deployments. That's one example of it. Uh, another example or examples would be whether it's Japan or Taiwan, uh, the fact that they are repeatedly having to scramble aircraft, ships to respond to Chinese provocations. And, and under that situation, the Chinese really set the, the tempo for the competition. We need to be looking to ways where we can set the tempo of the competition. So I think us responding and Taiwan responding are two different things, right? So uh, we kind of want to respond. You know, they're not overstressing us, but certainly to your point, they are overstressing Taiwan, their Air Force, particularly with the alert launches. Um, so, so, uh, point well taken. Um, so what do you think their, um, intent is with respect to Taiwan in the near term? Look, I think the, the Chinese leadership would, you know, like to, uh, be able to achieve their goals without, without fighting. I think they'd like to win without fighting. I think they feel that, um, they were on a trajectory to bring Taiwan closer and closer to the fold. Um, certainly before China's crackdown on Hong Kong, uh, certainly before um, uh, political developments on, on Taiwan, 
uh, I think made it apparent to the Chinese leadership that that, that was less and less likely. So uh, I think you know the, the 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 concern is really that to the extent that the Chinese leadership uh, doesn't believe that it can win without fighting, then it's gonna it's gonna prepare to 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 fight and win. And so we have to be prepared for that contingency as well. So let's bring in one of our viewers question, uh, Tor Toro Porco. Did I say that right? Uh, ask what tactical role will Japan's Navy play and how does South Korea factor into this? Well, first, I think Japan Japan has a very powerful, uh, powerful Navy. The, the Japan Self-Defense Force itself overall, uh, of course, the... the uh, the, the, the parts of the Japan Self-Defense Force that that uh, influence the seas goes beyond the Navy, because uh, it's actually the ground self-defense force that operates uh, Japan's coastal defense cruise missiles, for example. But uh, I think Japan's Navy has uh, an important role to play, first and foremost, to defend Japanese sovereignty. And uh, that should not be underestimated. So if, if, you, if you look at the map, uh, the southwest islands of Japan extend almost to Taiwan. And so the ability of, of the Japanese Navy to enforce Japanese sovereignty, say, you know, out to 200 uh, nautical miles, would be a, a, a very considerable weight uh, on the balance between China and Taiwan. To, to, to South Korea, I think I think that's a great question. I think we've you know first and foremost historically thought about the uh, the South Korean military in the context of a of a war on the Korean Peninsula, and I think that's right. But I think there does need to be more thinking about how uh, South Korea might figure and 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 the uh, the willingness and the ability of the uh, of the South Korean military, South Korean Navy. Uh, to play in this uh, in, in this realm as well. Uh, Tom, uh, getting a little bit deeper into your article and, and the way you sort of lay out this uh, idea of a strategy, uh, one of the uh, sections is called scope, scale, and duration. And, and I'll just read a little bit here because, you know, this has been in a lot of proceedings articles. It's also discussed a lot in war games, and Naval War College, and those kinds of things. But so here, here's the, the statement. Past assessments often portrayed a conflict with China as a short, sharp war that would be over in days. Under some circumstances, this could prove to be correct. It is, of course, possible that the United States and its allies could achieve a quick, decisive victory over China. Conversely, if the Chinese can achieve strategic and operational surprise, they could achieve a quick, decisive victory. It is, however, increasingly possible that a war with China could be protracted, in particular, the growth and spread of precision strike systems to include China's large investment appears to herald an era of protracted war. Since these weapons allow states such as China to deny the United States the theater buildup it would need to achieve a quick victory. So um, what what kinds of things are the Chinese doing to, uh, you know, to build a capability that would that would undermine, uh, you know, our U.S. and our allies ability, you know, for a, a quick war, for a short war? Yeah, look, really since the 1990s, late 1990s, the, the Chinese have been very methodical in building up the capabilities needed to deny us 
the the type of war that we would prefer to to fight. And if if you look at look at Chinese military modernization, um, it's it's been it's been quite uh, intentional and quite methodical. So if we if we go back to the say the late 1990s and we look at the world from from Beijing's perspective, we say, well, what 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 can the United States do to hurt us? Uh, the greatest source of combat power in in the theater uh, would have been land-based air. And so you look at China acquiring a whole family of precision-guided conventional ballistic and cruise missiles to be able to deny us the use of our theater air bases. So you take take that off the table. Then you say, uh, or you would say, or imagine, imagine Chinese uh, military leaders saying, okay, well, what, what's, what can hurt us now? And it's primarily American sea power, our, our carrier strike groups first and foremost, with their ability to bring to bear sustained firepower. So you see a whole raft of investments by the Chinese to go after our carrier strike groups, including our, their uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles, uh, but also cruise missiles, uh, you know, a whole, a whole variety of, of means. Let's imagine then that that's taken off the table. <clears throat> well, what can the United States uh, do to hurt China under those circumstances? Well, we've got uh, bombers. Uh, we've got 20 minus uh, B2 you know, stealth bombers. We're, we're hoping to get the, uh, the B-21 bomber uh, in coming years. And then we have uh, submarine launched weapons. And, uh, and so what do you see? You see now China uh, investing in anti-submarine warfare um, and and improved air defenses and so forth. So they've been very methodical about trying to uh, take away our power projection capabilities. And how about building their own power projection? So China, yeah. Chinese uh, Marine Corps. How would China take um, you know the 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 Senkakus, for example, or how would it take and seize uh, Taiwan? What what are its forces, its capabilities, its amphibious amphibious forces? These and, days? and, and also to that, their yeah. aircraft carrier, their conventional aircraft carrier mm -hmm. desire. Um, how, how's that tracking? Yeah, no. Look, you're absolutely. Right. Do you one? Uh, um, I'll do you one better. Uh, the uh, uh, so so in a way, China is actually. Uh, building three navies, and I, I, I'll, I put navies in air quotes because it's not all the People's Liberation Army Navy that's that has this capability, but it does have this um, anti-access force or this counter-intervention force, sea denial force. Yeah, it is building a, a power projection capability, and that's not just a, a regional power projection capability, but also uh, extra-regional. I, I, I'm not quite willing to say global yet, although that's the path they appear to be going on. They're putting a lot of money into their own care, just, just as they're putting a lot of money into uh, being able to destroy and defeat aircraft carriers, they're also putting a lot of money in, into building aircraft carriers of their own. Uh, and, and then the third part is um, they're also building, uh, if you will, sort of a humanitarian assistance disaster relief Navy, kind of a you know a, so a softer navy as well. Uh, they're doing all all those things, and when it comes to to whether it's the Senkakus or or Taiwan, uh, clearly they're they're building up their amphibious capability. They're also building up their um, air assault capability. So their 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 helicopter uh, delivered um, landing capability. 
Um, and you know, it's uh, um, uh, a, fr a friend of mine who's uh, uh, quite talented when it comes to uh, geography. It's actually produced a very, uh, very telling map comparing the the geography of the Normandy landing to the geography of the uh, of the Taiwan Strait. And you know, from one perspective, it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, this it's Taiwan Strait is this insurmountable problem. But if you if you if you overlay the the geography of the Taiwan Strait to the uh, to to Normandy, the distances aren't all that aren't all that different. So it would be a it would be a huge undertaking, uh, but it's been done before. So our friend Kyle asked the following: What FIC nations other than Japan will ally with us and host missiles? The barrier cost imposition campaign of Indian Ocean Commerce rating would have the DF-26 range out to the, I'm not sure what the SIC is. Second Island chain. Ah. So, so um, this issue of, you know, of, of hosting missiles. Well, I'd I, I put it two different ways. So first, um, a number of, uh, of our allies and <laughs> a number of states in the, in the first island chain are acquiring the ability to, uh, to contest the seas on their own, right? So <clears throat> Japan's a perfect example of it. Uh, Japan ground self-defense force currently um, deploys um, land-based sea denial capabilities and they're modernizing those. Philippines just bought um, uh, anti-ship missiles from, from India. So first you have a number of, uh, and, and uh, Taiwan is acquiring the capability as well. So you have a number of countries that are acquiring that on their own. And then there's the question of, uh, of US deployments. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a great topic for discussion with our allies. I think in some cases, uh, allies will wanna do things on their own. And, and in that case, we should really try to maximize uh, interoperability with, with those allies. <clears throat> in other cases, they may want, uh, they, may, they may seek reassurance in US deployments and we should think about that as well. You also uh, talk about the second island chain. I think when we talk about the so-called second island chain, now you're getting to uh, U.S. territory like Guam, and and there, you know, it's farther farther from uh, uh, from the scene, farther to hit, not invulnerable, uh, but also takes longer to get to whether it's uh, you know Taiwan or, or or the Senkakus. So, uh, Tom, one of the things that intrigued me of, with your article, you, you, you talked a, a little bit about uh, Bradford Lee's um, uh, take on strategy. And so as we I mean, this is, you know, our, our readers are very familiar with the fact that the, the, the China situation, this whole South Asia, South China Sea, th this is a Rubik's Cube. Our, you know, our biggest trading partner is, you know, is China or one of our largest trading partners is China and we theirs. Uh, this is very different than the Cold War. The whole idea of deterrence and and limited war and you know nuclear armed uh, the potential for nuclear armed conflict is it going to be a short sharp war, a long protracted war? How do you impose costs? How do you deter the Chinese from you know going after Taiwan or the Senkakus or whatever they they've decided to go after? But you know you, you describe um, you, you quote from Bradford Lee saying there's four families of strategy. A strategy of denial, a strategy of cost cost imposition, uh, a strategy that attacks the rival strategy, and then one that attacks a competitor's political system. So, how 
how do you, um, you know, it, it, when you think of an inside outside strategy against China, uh, are you mainly focused on one of those aspects of strategy or all of them? Uh, how do you think the United States needs to think about um, a, a strategy that will deal with China, deter China from being, uh, you know, expansionist into the nations that surround it, particularly our friends and allies, as they seek to weaken the United States and weaken Japan and and weaken the Philippines and Vietnam and other countries around them. Yeah, look, I, I think Brad Bradley's uh, uh, framework is a I, I find a, a, you know a supremely helpful one, and 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 Brad was a, a colleague of mine for for many years at the Naval War College and a real real trusted and and uh, and, and cherished uh, uh, colleague. And I think it's it's a very it's a very helpful way of thinking about it because it it focuses us on what is the effect that we want to have on our adversary, right? So, uh, strategy of denial, you know, seeks to convince an adversary that it's impossible for them to achieve their objectives, right? Strategy of cost imposition doesn't seek you know, doesn't try to convince an adversary that it's impossible, just that it would be unfruitful, that it would be disproportionately costly. Uh, strategy of, um, uh, you know, going after your your or attacking your adversary strategy seeks to to invalidate the assumptions of of the strategy, and then uh, uh, attacking the adversary's political system is is really to to turn political decision making to your you know to your uh, to your benefit. For us, I think, uh, and and I would say that they are each of those strategies is um distinct uh but they're not mutually exclusive so for us i think what what we should be seeking to do is to to deny the pla the type of war that they would like so to create uncertainty uh to uh create doubt in their in their uh in their heads as to whether their their strategy could succeed and uh, and then go, kind of go from there. Um, so start with attacking their strategy, and hand in hand with that goes uh, imposing lots of lots of costs. Um, they've done the same to us. I mean, they've uh, if again if you look at their investments, they've imposed lots of costs on us. They've caused us to go back to the drawing board when it comes to some of the fundamental assumptions of our strategy. And I think they aspire to ultimately a strategy of denial, where we will. You know, not even believe it possible to uh, project uh, project power. They won't. I don't think they'll get there. But I think that's what they that's what they seek. Uh, so, Tom, let's talk now a little bit about um, you, you know your, your strategy is. Hey, there are forces that you're going to array that the United States should array along that first island chain, along the second island chain. Um, stand-in forces, uh, General you know, General Berger, the Marine Commandant, calls them stand-in forces. What what the capabilities that the Marine Corps is starting to to develop now? How, how do those, in your mind, if we're if we're doing that correctly, what what do they look like, and how do they uh, how do they sow doubt in in Beijing's mind about what they what they can accomplish, uh, and and the, the the realistic capabilities that they've got or or don't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I think you, you're you're going to want a, uh, uh, a variety of forces 
that are capable of uh, inflicting sea denial, inflicting air denial, conducting anti-submarine warfare, doing ISR, uh, a raid along uh, the, the first island chain at various times, various places. Uh, they have to be credible, right? They, they have to draw attention, um, and, but, and they also have to create uncertainty. And I think temporal and, um, and geographic uncertainty. I'm not, uh, I'm not talking about, you know, plopping down a, a big U.S. base you know, uh, a big juicy target uh, somewhere in the first island chain. I think it's it's going to be a pattern of deployments, uh, perhaps perhaps some rotational basing, perhaps some some longer term basing, but uh, with enough capability to create uncertainty uh, and create uncertainty in the mind of Chinese planners, and of course backed. Uh, by, if you will, Big Brother, uh, by uh, by maritime and air air forces capable of of conducting sustained operations, if it comes to that. So I'll go back a little bit because I, I Kyle Craig, who asked that question a minute ago, he also uh, put a, a pretty long comment uh, on the discuss platform on our online comments on your article. That was uh, Kyle writes for proceedings quite often. He's a very thoughtful guy. Um, but but he said, you know, why would we even think about going after China military on military in in the, the first island chain uh, in the Western Pacific? I mean, that's going to be a, a pretty painful slog. Right. And the Chinese have got these, this capability. They've got significant ISR. It's not going to be impossible to, for them to find U.S. naval forces uh, and put some of those you know, DF-21, C, D-26, the new hypersonic weapon, uh, you know, anti-ship uh, cruise missiles, you know, to they've got some weapons that can reach out and touch us. Why not instead impose costs on, on China's global maritime capabilities? It's shipping. It's, it's lifeblood, the, the lifeblood of its economy outside of that, of that ring of conflict, if you will. Sure, and and uh, in t to take us back to the beginning um, uh, of of this podcast, I mean, uh, I wrote this to stimulate debate, and so I, I think this this is a debate uh, that we need to be having, right? Uh, in my view, though, um, yeah, I don't I don't know that we can um, defend Japan, defend Taiwan, defend our interests in the Western Pacific uh, exclusively through a uh, a commerce rating strategy, which by definition takes a long time to, uh, you know, to have an effect. I don't know that that type of a, a strategy also uh, would be a powerful deterrent, you know, to the type of fait accompli uh, attacks that we're that we're worried about. So I wouldn't dismiss it, but I, I don't. I wouldn't put too much on it. I think. I think that the, the, as uh, as as uh, as he said, yeah, it would be it would be a slog. That's absolutely right. Uh, and uh, anything that that appears to offer uh, a kind of a more attractive solution uh, should be examined. But I think it should also be examined uh, critically. And I would say that about you know a number of other proposals about horizontal escalation and so forth. Um, is the what is the you know the value of the object that the Chinese are seeking, and how can we how can we deny that? 
Um, but it's a good, again, it's a good discussion. And I think we, we need to be having it. And I, I certainly hope that uh, a good chunk of it uh, takes place in the pages of proceedings. Yeah, and it is. And I think you're right. That's a great, uh, it's a great discussion point. And it's a, it's a good point that, that the strategy needs to be, um, you know, a multi-axis kind of strategy. So yeah, uh, holding at risk some of the things that the Chinese hold dear and need, including access to raw materials coming from the Middle East or, or, or Africa, for example, uh, that's going to have some coercive uh, behavior uh, or, or deterrent deterrent value to it. But, but you know, you also have to be able to reach out and directly stop them. I think we're seeing that right now with the whole behavior of, of Russia and Putin and around the Ukraine that, you know, the, com the conversation around Nord Stream 2, that gas pipeline with, with Germany, it's, uh, it's part of the conversation, but nobody's saying that's going to stop Russian tanks, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, so I think that's really right. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, you know, I, as we're as we're talking, having this conversation, one of the um, recent articles and series of articles that um, that have played in proceedings over the last couple of years, and uh, Tal Manville is an author who was the program manager for the Ford class carrier, and the Ford is in the news a lot. And should we be building carriers, and what's the, the capability? All those things, right? And um, we talked about a, uh, an article that T Tal has written uh, on the Ford class at our most recent editorial board. And I'm reminded, as I was talking to, to Tal afterwards, I was reminded that the requirements for the Ford class were laid down in the 1990s. This is 20-something years ago, where our assumptions about where the Navy was going to go, what carrier aviation was going to have to do, revolved around a Middle East scenario and a North Korea scenario. They did not revolve around the potential for war against China and the South China Sea or defending Taiwan. They, they really didn't, right? And so the assumptions that go into the force planning for the United States, they those, those assumptions take a long time to play out into actually building uh, capabilities that are fielded, that, you know, naval professionals and, and Marines actually bring into the field and can, can you know, can bring to bear against an adversary. So um, the, the long, long way to a, to a question, which is, are we, and this is going to come up next week at West, right? Are we, um, are, are we thinking fast enough? Are we adapting quickly enough to the capabilities that the Chinese are fielding, to the strategy that they've developed, and then the capabilities that they're bringing to bear to reach that strategic goal for themselves, um, are, are, are we moving in the right direction? Are the USC services, the naval forces, are we moving in the right direction to build, to envision and build and field those capabilities that would under, you know, sort of underwrite your strategy that you've written in this article? Well, and to put to put a finer point on Bill's question, Tom, is the program is the program of record appropriate for this? threat, real and potential. Yeah, look, I mean, it, so great, great points. Um, you know, the you're absolutely right that the force that we have today, you know, bears kind of geographic imprint of whether it's the late Cold War or the, the post-Cold War period. Um, we do need to move faster. Um, and we need to move with a sense of urgency, but but by the same and and we can't we can't 
imagine that we'll have the time to do all the things that we want to do um, at, at the pace that we're used to doing them. Um, so I would say, look, most, most assuredly, the, the program of record isn't right. Um, and in dealing with it, I think we, we need to be thinking about not just modernization, right? So like, what's the, you know, what's, what's the next platform after this? We need to be doing that. We also need to be thinking about uh, what we can do now, what we can do now to adapt the forces that we have uh, for the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, because I think that's, that's always the, the case that, that things do change. So building more adaptability into our, our, our program and our systems, I think really is, uh, really is vital. So unfortunately, we're, we're running short on time here, but uh, Tom, I'd like you to give you an opportunity just to talk a little bit about what is, you know, at the end of your, uh, your article, you get to this uh, section called effective deterrence. So, so what does winning look like? What, is, what does it look like if we, if we create the strategy and the capabilities uh, to deter China? What, what, is that, what, is, what does Chinese behavior become in the late 2020s and 2030s so that we're not headed towards war, so that the Thucydides, um, you know, uh, trap, right, uh, doesn't doesn't turn into a trap. Yeah, look, I think I think so. We do need to think through uh, how the Chinese leadership could could respond to you know to this strategy. Um, a good a good response, as far as we're concerned. Uh, would be uh, a China that doubles down on uh, on the Asian continent, that focuses you know, relatively less on the uh, on the Asian littoral on, on on maritime Asia, and more on continental Asia. That, uh, to my mind, that's that would be a, uh, that would be a good outcome. Uh, a China that uh, that. Maybe this is being a little bit hopeful, but a, a, a Chinese leadership that that uh, buys in a little bit more to the international status quo that would be that would be a good thing, and a China that focuses more internally than externally, um, whether that's improving the uh, you know the lives of Chinese citizens, being more responsive to to their needs. Again, I think that would be a good thing as well. Uh, but it's it, it does come back to deterrence, right? More effective deterrence. We get there by creating uncertainty. Uh, by by raising the, the the prospect of costs, and then hopefully uh, shaping Chinese behavior over time. I like it. So we are uh, sadly out of time. The article is called "A Maritime Strategy to Deal with China." It is in the February issue of Proceedings. So it's on pages forty four and forty five. The author is Tom Mankin. He is the president of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments here in Washington, D.C. Tom, thanks for your time today, and thanks for writing for Proceedings. Always a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you today. Take care. Thank you, Tom. All right, that wraps another issue of uh, another episode of the Proceedings podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute, and this podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. If you're not a member, please go to www.usni.com dot org forward slash join. Have a great week. And we look forward to seeing some of you out in San Diego next week. Go West. All right. <laughs>